All right. Some of you, I'm going to take five minutes to read to you the story some of you may have heard of before. Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box, and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window, too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be car sick. No one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a horrible, a terrible, a horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Mrs. Dickens liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. At singing time, she said I sang too loud. At counting time, she said I left out 16. Who needs 16? I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I could tell because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said that Philip Parker was his best friend and that Albert Moyo was his next best friend and that I was only his third best friend. I hope you sit on a tack, I said to Paul. I hope the next time you get a double-decker strawberry ice cream cone, the ice cream part falls off and the cone part lands in Australia. There were two cupcakes in Philip Parker's lunch bag, and Albert got a Hershey bar with almonds, and Paul's mother gave him a piece of jelly roll that had little coconut sprinkles on the top. Guess whose mother forgot to put in his dessert? It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's what it was, because after school, my mom took us all to the dentist, and Dr. Fields found a cavity just in me. Come back next week, and I'll fix it, said Dr. Fields. Next week, I said, I'm going to Australia. On the way downstairs, the the elevator door closed on my foot. And while we were waiting for my mom to go get the car, Anthony made me fall where it was muddy. And then when I started crying because of the mud, Nick said I was a crybaby. And while I was punching Nick for saying crybaby, my mom came back with the car and scolded me for being muddy and fighting. I am having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I told everyone No one answered. So then, we went to the shoe store to buy some sneakers. Anthony chose white ones with blue stripes. Nick chose red ones with white stripes. I chose blue ones with red stripes. But then the shoe man said, We're all sold out. They made me buy plain old white ones. But they can't make me wear them. When we picked up my dad... At his office, he said I couldn't play with his copy machine, but I forgot. 
He also said to watch out for the books on his desk. And I was careful as could be, except for my elbow. He also said, don't fool around with his phone. But I think I called Australia. My dad said, please don't pick him up anymore. It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. There were lima beans for dinner, and I hate lima beans. There was kissing on TV, and I hate kissing. My bath was too hot, I got soap in my eyes, my marble went down the drain, and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says Sundays are like that, even in Australia. Terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Have you had one of those? But have you had one of those lives? Has that been your life? It's been a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad life up to now. Well, Israel could probably say the same after these chapters. But I guarantee that you can't say yours has been as bad as these have been. Or let's at least pray that you can get out of it if it has been. So here's how we're going to start. I want you to look at Numbers chapter 14. Verse 32, we're going to see how this ends, and then see what got us here. See if this comes close to one of your worst days ever. We'll actually start in Numbers 14, verse 28. Numbers 14, 28. Say to them, God says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Oh, be careful wanting your way. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, I who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you... Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. Now that is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And it will continue for forty years. Friends, sometimes in life we have events that are just rotten. Yeah, and we can move on. We can endure so much of that. But there's nothing worse than a life that is going in the direction of God, comes to the threshold of all of the blessings and promises he's given to you, the plan he's been guiding you into, turns 180 and says, I don't want it, and then walks directly in the, walks directly back in the direction toward Egypt from which you've been delivered. And then once it gets almost to Egypt, rounds back around, almost to the land God wanted you to have, and then once again turns back around and does this loop for 40 years. You know the problem with a loop? 
You don't go anywhere. You repeat over and over. It might be exciting the first year. And the second year, you might think, I'm pretty sure we've never been here before. But third, fourth, seventh, eighth, maybe the twelfth year, you're like, I know I've seen that cactus before. And that rock, not every rock looks like a howling dog. I know we've been here. And soon you're starting to track the growth, the ever so slow growth of cacti and rocks and sand. And it would become a very meaningless life. That's a life that has no purpose. That's a life that is dying. That's a life that feels dreadful. That is a miserable life. When we are just spinning the same circle and we feel stuck and we're not getting anywhere. So we see what Israel is condemned to, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, basically a 40-year death march. That sounds great. But in chapter 10, where we're starting, this is how it started. It started off good. Chapter 10, verse 11. In the second year, so remember, they've been, they've been delivered from Egypt, and they've been sitting under Mount Sinai for roughly a year. And now they're finally going out. They're now in the second year of their liberation from Egypt. So in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. Finally, it's happening. The cloud which God said, I will guide you with. You move when it moves. You stop when it stops. That cloud begins to move after a year. And they're excited. It's happening, guys. Come on, pack up, get the cattle, get the kids. Let's go. We are finally leaving this Mount Sinai, and we are now headed directly for the promised land. This is why God saved us. This is where he's taking us. This is the plan he has for us. Let's go into it. And so we're now in the phase where they're not just being trained up. God's ready to take them in. But the toddlers of Israel may not be as ready as they think they are. And so this is the frightening realities. We can be in route to God's plan for our lives, and then we can make a series of decisions that makes that great plan turn into a miserable life or a very terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, very bad 40 years. So um, how do they do it? How did they lead a miserable life? We're going to pull five. You could probably say a hundred ways you can make a miserable life. But we're going to pull five from the text uh, that Israel does. And if you want to, if you want to lead a miserable life, follow this message. If you don't, do the opposite. So first, if you want to lead a miserable life, expect entitlement, expect entitlement and reject enough. 11, verse 1. And the people complained. So they're on their way to the promised land. You think it's good news. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. <laughs> you're leaving Mount Sinai. You've been in the same spot for a year. Don't you celebrate when finally you're out of a place you've been stuck in for a year? Shouldn't you be celebrating? And now you're going to that plan God has for you, the plan he's been telling you for a good year. You're going to this great land. You're on your way. Shouldn't it be? What misfortunes? You know, Things aren't as good as they want them to be. Now you're going to see why. But I need to point out, there's a massive difference between what you want and what you need. There's a massive difference between what you want and what you need. 
Unfortunately, America, uh, a lot of Americans, I should say, um, we have a mentality, don't we, of rights. And we have rights. That's what makes America great. But the things that people start calling rights now, I'm kind of, I chuckle. Like, no, those are just wants. Those aren't needs. Uh, you know, cable is not your right. Cable TV, that's not your right. And sometimes we have to make hard choices if we aren't making ends meet. And you still have cable, but you can't pay your rent? Where, what, what are you doing? No, no, you don't understand. I gotta have my shows. No, no, you don't understand. It's not your right to be entertained. That's a want. It's not a need. But, but if you want to live continually getting the things I feel entitled to and expecting those things, you will lead a miserable life. We cannot put our desires and the things that we want, we cannot have that lead the cart. We have to understand that sometimes we have to say what we have is enough. In fact, yeah, it would be hard, but you know, sometimes we could eat half as much as we do and call that enough. Sometimes we could have half as many clothes as we have and call that enough. Sometimes we just need to think and be wise about what we're doing instead of just always saying, but I got to have it, but it's a sale. I, I just have this weakness. Well, if you're not, if you don't have the means, don't, don't do it. You're going to lead a miserable life. Well, Israel has had more than enough for this whole year in the wilderness. God has been raining manna down from heaven, bread for them to eat, but it's not enough. Well, in Egypt, we didn't get to eat that. So see what they say. Verse 1, again, the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tabarach because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Doesn't the name just kind of make you, oh, don't go there. Now, the rabble, as if that wasn't lesson enough, the rabble in verse 4 that was among them had a strong craving. There are a lot of those in this room. We all have strong cravings. What's yours? And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumber, nothing. It wasn't your slave labor that fed you or anything. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Man, it's like they, they're like reading menus and salivating. You know, the pocket Egyptian menus. And they're like, when you feel like you want to go back home, pull this out. And they're reading the menus. And they're like, I can't believe how good it was. But now, verse 6, our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. They're not even saying there's nothing but this manna to eat. They're just like, there's nothing but this manna to look at. We are so tired of graham crackers that we just look at them. And we're hungry. Yeah, but we're not going to eat them. Come on. Come on. You're wanting something when what you need is right there. The manna was enough for them. This food was what gave them the strength to walk we're going to read in Deuteronomy that their shoes didn't even wear out. Like manna is magical bread given by God so that they can be sustained. And that's somehow not enough because we, we just want meat. And that, notice how they thought about Egypt too in this. Like, yeah, yeah, but back in the good old days. Wait, what? 
Egypt was the good old days. Really? This is, this is the danger of nostalgia, which I'm starting to recognize that as you live more life, there's more chance, there's more uh, ability to practice nostalgia where the past was better just because it was the past. We have to be careful. Now, look, I know, I know. No, we're, we're mostly not happy with the direction of our country. So it's easy. It's really easy then to say, oh, the past was so good. But was it really that good? I mean, our youth were, were crackheads, you know, back just not too many decades ago. Now they're caffeine addicted. That's, well, that's a little better, isn't it? Video games better than drugs? I don't, I mean, sometimes we can say, oh, but those years are so good. Yeah, the part you're remembering was really good. But it's not true that the past was always better. And when we live like that, though, we can start to actually lead a miserable life. Because all you're going to do is be looking backward and cursing everything else around you and saying, we need to go back there. But God's like, no, no, we need to go forward. Bring the best of what was back there into the future. Bring it with you. So, so let's not expect entitlement and let's not reject enough. Um, manna was enough, but they, no, we, need, we want meat because the nostalgia of Egypt, which was such a lie, is telling us that this right now is not enough. We, we have to be really careful. Uh, we need to thank God for the present every day because this is his gift to us to be the best people of God we can be right now. Number two, act on your adolescent appetite. Act on your adolescent appetite. So they complain wanting meat and... Um, God and Moses have this powwow in which Moses gets some help from elders. And then we come back to this scene in verse 31 of chapter 11. And so God addresses their desire for meat. Now, they've been crying for it over and over. They want their way. Please, brothers, sisters, be so careful of insisting on your way. Because God will give it to you. If at the least to teach you that your way is not a very good way. So in verse 31, then a wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. Holy moly. Okay, so you walk that direction for a whole day. There's quail on the ground for about three feet high. And then you come back and walk a day the other direction. And then a day north and a day south. That is a lot of meat. You want meat? I'll give you meat. You can almost see the angelic truckloads dumping them onto the ground. Here, swim in that, Israel. And they do. So in verse 32, And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. They're like teenagers who've been deprived of internet for a month and come back and just all day and all night. <laughs> Some of you have seen that in action. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Where, where do you spread it out? I mean, like, here's my food. Oh, move the birds. I've already, there, there's so many, where do you put it? And they're stacking them like up, right? They're just so in over their heads, almost literally. 33, while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. 
Therefore, the name of that place was called Gebrath Hatavach, because there they buried the people who had the craving. I could just hear them as they're burying people, just muttering as they dig and kick birds out of the way. Gebrath Hatavach, Gebrath Hatavach. It just sounds like that's why they named it that, because they were doing their best. Um, from Kibrath Hatavah, the people journeyed to Hezroth, and they remained at Hezroth. Okay, so if you want to lead a miserable life, act on your adolescent appetite. They're craving it. It was there. Go for it. Um, I say your adolescent appetite, because you may have noticed that as you age, your appetite is different than it was as an adolescent. Now, there's this phenomenon among people who are young, uh, teens and 20s, to blow everything out of proportion, where what's happening to me right now has eternal consequences. Like, like I really want a girlfriend right now. And if I don't get one right now, this loneliness that I'm feeling, they take that loneliness and they intensify it by eternity and say, this is how I'm going to feel forever. i got to fix this now. So they make rash decisions. So what teenagers do is the appetite is so strong that they just have to work on it now. Uh, that's why they can get really excited and really depressed and make really dumb decisions. Now, if you want to lead a miserable life, make sure you act on your appetite like that. Teach yourself that you need what you want now. That there's no point in waiting. Someone else might take the bird. Which one? <laughs> You see how absurd it is, though. See, they can't have the foresight in this moment to say, well, if we dry some of this, if we smoke some of this, we could actually carry it with us and preserve it. Rub some salt in it. Instead, like, fighting each other for, give it to me, no, mine. And they're ripping it in their teeth and they're getting sick. Who knows why? Maybe they're eating it raw. We don't know. They're just getting sick from this. Brothers, sisters, don't, don't act like an impulsive child, like a toddler who just needs its way now. In Christ, we can grow, and we need to keep growing. And we need to say at times, you know what, God, I have this strong craving. But I know it's not forever. Help me right now. And start looking at what's good around us. The manna would have been a great... You know, why don't they just throw some salt on it or some honey or just fix it up a little bit if they're tired of it? Call it chicken. It seems to work for most people. Eat it, kid. It's chicken. Oh, it is? Okay. So expect entitlement. Reject enough. Second, act on your um, adolescent appetites. Third, practice prejudice and get really good at it. Practice prejudice. That's the third way to lead a miserable life. Chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Now they're, it's bottom up. The rabble is complaining. Now second and third in command are complaining. The filth rises to the surface, right? Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. Hmm. For he had married a Cushite woman. That's news. That's what Aaron and uh, Miriam were thinking. Hmm, that's news. So they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? 
Has he not spoken through us also? So they're basically like, hey, Mo, God doesn't speak only to you. He speaks to us, too. And we have something to tell you. Now, you guys, have you, has anybody ever cornered you and said, hey, God told me to tell you this? Whew. Sometimes it's good, but I would say, well, in my experience, um, two to one, it's, it's usually not from God. It's, it's actually someone complaining about me using God as the authority. So they say, uh, as not God spoken through us also, and the Lord heard it. Oh, did I speak through you? Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who are on the face of the earth. Presumably an editor added that in for Moses. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. You can almost see him swagging on in, like, what are you going to tell us so that we can tell Moses? And the Lord came down in a pillar of the cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision, and I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. When with him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Suddenly the swag has become a bit of a slouch, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh, God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hezroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Man, if you want to lead a miserable life, practice prejudice. Now, often we think of prejudice because it's, uh, we use the word prejudice often in racial terms, which is here too. But prejudice really means to come to a conclusion about someone or something before you know it. That's what it means to be prejudiced. It means to prejudge prejudice. Now, Moses is prejudiced, um, well, he's criticized by Miriam and Aaron, apparently based upon this wife he chooses. Now, we don't see anything here about, oh, another wife so soon, huh? We don't see anything like that being said. It's nothing about the timing or about having another wife because his first one had died. There's, there's nothing about that. It seems to be, because it's mentioned twice, the race of the woman. She's a Cushite, which... Scholars are not entirely sure where Cush 
is specifically on our present day map. But the point is, is that she's not a Hebrew. She's not a Jew. And it seems that they take exception with Moses marrying someone from outside our tribe, outside our clan. Now, to make life more simple, we often enlist labels on people. We want to know their political stance, their musical tastes, uh, their income, their job, their car, uh, their belief. Are you a Calvinist or not? Are you a Calvary Chapelite or are you a Baptist? Like, we just want to know all these things about people because it's so easy for us to kind of like sense how the world's going to work if we have labels for everything. It becomes predictable. Oh, well, if you're that kind of person, I can expect that kind of behavior from you. And sometimes we can be so vicious with labels that we only belong to the people within our label. Within. And as soon as we find out that the person at our dinner table voted Hillary, (laughs) suddenly they're like, they must be a backslidden Christian. You're murmuring about them. Or, or, Or someone criticized Fox News. How dare they? Fox News said something untrue? Oh my gosh. Um, it's not your news Bible. But we, we can kind of, we can, we can see someone and start labeling them as, oh goodness, liberal. I know all about this sort. They just want to spend my tax dollars on helping everybody until we're broke. No, you know what though? Not all liberals are evil. In fact, Hey, I hope there's one in this room. I really hope there's a few liberals in here. And I, I'm, I'm going to bat for you right now, okay? I'm going to fend off the wolves a bit. Listen, it's easy to label people and say, oh, yeah, liberals are these kind of people. They're usually ungodly and so forth. Or they're usually millennials. Um, <laughs> but you need to get to know some. Because you'll find out all of a sudden, wait a minute. They're very nice people. They serve their neighbor. They were bringing food to this woman who just had a baby. And suddenly you realize they do good things like a Republican does. <laughs> They're humans like a Republican is. In fact, they worship the same Jesus that you do. It's really easy to label people, to keep our distance, to kind of micromanage the world and say, Moses, how dare you marry a Cushite? She did not raise, she was not raised with our teachings. Who knows what kind of paganism she's bringing in here? And Moses would maybe say, have you even taken the time to meet her? He married a Cushite woman. That's typical labeling. You dehumanize the human into a category. No, no, Moses would say to them, wait a minute here. Get to know her. She's amazing. Yes, she was raised in paganism. She now believes in Yahweh. And do you know what gifts she has? Do you know how she can contribute to this congregation moving forward? Do you know what she's doing for my sons and daughters who need another helper around? Oh man, that's so shaming when we suddenly realize the people we've judged and made assumptions about and had prejudices toward are just as human as us and are wonderful blessings to the world. So, that's the third. Practice prejudice. How to lead a miserable life? Fourth, think about 
what others think. Actually, pause. I didn't say that yet. Uh, The end here of chapter 12, um, practice prejudice, what we need to realize is as long as we keep labeling people, we keep hindering the progress of God's people. The more that we can get to know people as human beings and connect with them regardless of their labels, we will move forward. Now, you notice that uh, Miriam becomes a leper because of her criticism of Moses. And because of that, she's cast out of the camp for seven days. And the key verse here is verse 15. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. Oh, you think Miriam's prejudice against Moses and his wife was just a personal issue? It's just my opinion, man. Don't tell me how to see people. No, look, her opinion, her prejudice toward people and labeling them slowed the entire congregation to a halt for seven days. And sometimes we wonder why is the, why is the church becoming less influential in America? Hmm. Maybe we're not very good at so-called talking across the aisle or reaching out to people not like us or people that are of a different age than us. Very, very important. We don't make the mistake of prejudice, whether it's age, race, politics, religion, what have you. Jesus loved people. The labels the Pharisees put on, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus just called them people. It was the religious leaders that labeled them. We need to see the human behind the label. That's how we will keep going. So you want to lead a miserable life? Expect entitlement. Act on your adolescent appetite. Practice prejudice. And fourth, think about what others think. You want to lead a miserable life? Think about what others think all the time. So this this is great. Chapter 13, we have this moment where the Lord spoke to Moses in verse 1, saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan. Okay. So they are close enough that they can send 12 spies to go on a reconnaissance mission to see what the land is like so that they can come back and tell Moses and the generals, these are their weaknesses. These are the places we should enter. These are what the people are like. We should bring this kind of a strategy because they have these kind of walls or these kind of defenses. This is what they're in there to do. Not should we enter the land, come back. Yeah, it's a good land. Well, duh, God already told you it's a good land. That's answered. No, they go in the land, spy it, and come back to say, this is how we should enter the land. But you know what happens? They go in the land. They see the fruit. The grapes are so big that they have to carry them on a pole between two people. Maybe bowling ball sized. That's impressive grape. You could lose your head in there. (laughs) Hey, mom, watch this. Where's my baby? You look like an alien. They bring these grapes back. It's an amazing land. But you know what they tell the people? We shouldn't go in there. Wait, wait, wait. This was not a multiple choice that God gave them. Do you want to enter the land now, later, or never? They were sent in to go see how to go in. Well, look at the report they bring back. Verse 25 of chapter 13. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. 
And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. You could just see it. And look what we have. And they just like plop down on the stage that everyone's looking like, oh my goodness. And they told them, verse 27, we came to the land to which you sent us. Yes, it flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. You hear a gasp in the crowd. (gasps) The The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. They sure saw a lot of the people, didn't they? But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought the people, they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, (gasps) the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Okay. The Nephilim, the Anakites, or the sons of Anak, these are giants. You see them in Genesis 6. They're either giants or very vicious warriors, um, but they're very tough cookies to battle. And so they see all this and they're like, we can't do it, give up. Now, God in his plan for us never said, we talked about this last week, he never said it's going to be a golden road with roses and bumper lanes in case you go off. With, with lemonade stands every mile or so. He never said that. It's not going to be perfect. It will be hard, but it will be worth it. It seems that they didn't expect something hard. They go in like, oh no, the giants. And Caleb and Joshua are like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's not going to be easy, but God has given it to us and we can do it. We just have to want to succeed in God's plan. So, the reason that these 10 spies give this bad report, you, you can pick up on it real quick. Notice in the last verse, I love what they said in this last verse, verse 33. And we saw there the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Okay. We saw ourselves as grasshoppers. They saw us as grasshoppers. What's missing here? Someone said God, but God sees us as missing in the text. That was good. People said more than conquerors. I wasn't even thinking that, but that's so true. That's how God sees them. But they're not thinking about how God sees them. They're making the mistake of thinking about what others think. They see us as wimpy little grasshoppers. 
It seems that in the first third of our life, we spend our lives worried and obsessed with what other people think about us. That's why you want to be trendy, have all the latest fashions, talk right, listen to the right music, know all the answers to all the trending movies. That's your first third of life. By the second third of life, you start to learn, I don't care what people think about me. And you kind of grow into adulthood and become your own. Now, I've been told that by the third phase of life, you realize the liberating truth that no one was ever thinking about you at all. If you want to lead a miserable life, keep thinking about what others are thinking, especially about you. Because you are going to be hemmed in by the opinions of humans. They definitely were concerned with what the people of the land thought. Notice also their emphasis on the people of the land. In verse 30, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it. For we are able to overcome it. What's he talking about? The land. Let's go take the land. To Joshua and Caleb, it's all about the land. That's what God promised to them. God said, here's the land. Eyes on the land. I'm giving you the land. And so they look at the land and say, the land is beautiful. Look at the fruit. But there are giants there. There Yeah, well, I, I mean, God must know that. So he must have a plan. It is good. But the people refute him. Uh, 31, then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people. They're not even answering Caleb's comment. He said, we can overcome it. And they don't say, no, we can't overcome it. They say, no, we can't overcome the people. They're talking about two completely different things. And this is very manipulative. The 10 are using fear to sway the masses opinion. Fear is one of the most is one of the strongest emotional motivators in the human existence. And you want to manipulate a mass of people, scare them, scare them, and tell them where safety is. And the people trust the ten. By the way, you could almost add a sub point here. If you want to lead a miserable life, follow the crowd. Follow the crowd. That's a good way to do it. The ten are the crowd. And the not the two, Caleb and Joshua. So um, Proverbs 29.25. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man is a snare. The fear of man is a snare. It does not mean, oh, it's a human. It's going to eat me like a tiger. It means, oh, there's a human. I want them to like me. I want them to approve of me. I want them to acknowledge me. So you begin to play the person you need to be so that that person notices you. That's what the fear of man is. And that, the Proverbs say, is a snare. The ten spies fear man. And they are snared by caring about how they appear before the giants. Number five, our last one. We're now in chapter 14. So how to lead a miserable life? Expect entitlement. Act on your adolescent appetite. Practice prejudice. Think about what others are thinking all the time. And finally, believe in the malevolence 
of the Lord. Not the magnificence, not the benevolence or kindness or grace. Believe in the malevolence. Malevolence just means you want, you have ill will towards someone or something. So you want to lead a miserable life? Believe that God hates you and he's out to work against you. Now, you might be sitting here going, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But people believe this and ruin their lives by it. Israel's not an exception. So chapter 14, verse 1. So they hear this report. And all the congregation raised a loud cry. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole con- <laughs> they just never stopped grumbling against them. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. They just wanted to go back and eat the meat of Egypt. Now they want to go die in Egypt. <laughs> or would that we had died in this wilderness. They can't even make up their mind. They just want to die. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Whoa. Read verse 3 again. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? God has it out against us. He's bringing us here to die. They believe in the malevolence of God. Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, you got it, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes. Remember, those are the two that said, let's go take the land. So they're the good guys. And they tore their clothes and said to the people of Israel, the land, see once again their emphasis on the land, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. Good, just like our God, good. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Oh my goodness. Their vision and their perspective of God is immensely helpful here. Verse 3 and verse 8 are opposites. They're contrasting one another. In verse 3, the people are saying, God wants to kill us. And in verse 8, Joshua and Caleb are saying, wait, but he delights in us. He doesn't just tolerate us and say, well, I'll give you this land as long as you'll be quiet and stop complaining. No, he's delighting in us. He wants to give us good things. He wants to take us into the good land. He wants his plan for us to succeed and he wants us to walk in that. He doesn't want us to be miserable. He's not like the Greek gods manipulating humans and picking on them and working pranks and laughing at their misery. He's not like the pagan gods. He wants us to succeed and he delights in us. That's what they're pleading. If he indeed delights in us, we are going to take it and we'll be fine and we will be better for it. You can just hear the pleading. Please don't rebel, but they do. And in verse 11, we see some more of their vision. The Lord now explaining to us how the people see him. He said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in sight of all the signs that I've done among them? And then down in verse 22, God speaking again, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test those 10 times 
and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. But, contrast, 24, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. And then in verse 28, we pick up where we started tonight. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. And then he tells them about their 40-year death march through the wilderness. You sure you want your way? God's like, I'll give it to you. But listen, your way leads to death if you do not believe in the goodness of God. If we believe in his malevolence, his will to destroy us, his inability to tolerate us, then you will make choices that will lead to a miserable life. This is how the Israelites ruin themselves. They believe that God despised them. And that's how you will ruin yours too. One of the saddest things you can see is when people do sin there's something they're deeply ashamed of or something very big. And when they sin, they cannot conceive of a God that still loves them and wants the best for them. They begin to imagine a God that's angry, a God that cannot possibly tolerate someone as stupid as I am, someone who fails as easily or as often as I do. And so they just give up. If I've already transgressed, I'm just going to go the whole way. And you can see the Israelites giving up. A 40-year death march. Of course, they're condemned to this, but sometimes we do this too. We start walking in the circle, not because we have to walk out our 40 years, but because we don't want to get out of it. We don't feel worthy of getting out of this death march. We feel like this is what we deserve because we don't believe that God actually delights in us and wants to bring us to a land flowing with milk and honey. Our sins are those things that cause us to fall. And sometimes we fall flat on our face and we don't want to get back up. But we need to learn to fall upward. Because that's what grace is. Grace is a trampoline in which the harder you fall, the better the bounce back. Only if, only if we believe, as Joshua and Caleb did, that God delights in us, will we believe that he is a trampoline of grace to receive us when we fall. But if God hates us, if God wants to ruin us, if God wants to see us fall in our failure and laugh at the mud in our face, there's no trampoline. There's just a 40-year cycle to continue to live in misery. Oh, I did it again. I'll try better, I promise, God. And making all these promises to God, going to church more, praying longer. Not because you're trying to change from the inside, because you're trying to work your way out of your sin. And then you fall and you go back into the cycle over and over. Brothers and sisters, Christ, in that sense, is more miserable than a sinner in Disneyland. Or a sinner's Disneyland, I mean. Really. The sinner has a freedom to go sin, sort of, as sin's telling him, sin's ruling him. But, you know, the sinner 
doesn't live in this cycle of, oh, I did it again. If we want, if we're following God and believe he hates us, you are in more misery. I want us to practice. Well, be careful I say that. I want us to practice the trampoline of grace. I'm not telling you to go sin big time to see how high you can bounce. That's not what I'm saying. But we, see, what we need to understand is when we walk with God, you don't have to go sin to see what grace is like. You're going to remember walking with him. You're going to remember all the enough sins you have to test it out. You just reach back. Which one should I reach for now? And see how this bounces on grace. So I'm not asking us to go sin and see how this works. You've got enough history to work with. Start testing that on the trampoline. See, what I've learned in life is that failure teaches us more than success. And all the great people have said that, haven't they? I've learned more from my failures than my successes. And you know what is so good about God's grace is that it is that trampoline which says, I know you're going to fail, and that can teach you more than sitting down in a little cell in prayer for 24-7. Because the person that sins learns their limitations, and they learn the love and grace of God. Now, I'm not saying the more you sin, the more you grow in God. You only need to sin a few times to get the point. But see, the one who looks at that failure and says, I want to fall upward from that, they are growing and learning. We don't need to beat ourselves up and send ourselves into the 40-year death march because of something you've done or said or thought, even though you did it 100 times in two days. You don't need to. These are all opportunities to bring us back to the trampoline of grace. All opportunities so that we can say, God, teach me how to walk better. Teach me how to walk more closely. Teach me to walk so that I step over the cactus next time and not full frontal into it. In that sense, those who walk closely with God, even their sin becomes grace. God uses all things for good. Yeah, that too. If you believe in his goodness and his delight in you. So I don't know if you've been bouncing on the trampoline or you've been bounced off or you've never seen it before. We need to to jump on it tonight. And we need to soar and float in the goodness of God and not believe in his malevolence, but believe in his magnificence. So Caleb did this, and that's why God says Caleb has a different spirit. I just want to caution you one more thing. I want to caution you guys tonight not to try to bounce back in your own efforts. You need grace to be the springboard back. Don't do this in your own effort. Watch what happens when you do. Verse 39. When Moses told these words to all the people, you're going on a 40-year death march, the people mourned greatly. Yeah. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are! We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Uh, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when he... When that will not succeed, do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned your back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But 
they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Horna. Wow. So there are the people who said, oh, we messed up. Let's go fix it. And what we learned is that they got beat. So look, we fall on our face. God is not asking you to say, oh my goodness, I got to make this up and make God happy with me. Nope. You've got to bounce on the trampoline of grace. That's not fair though. I didn't do anything to make up for it. Go ahead and try, but just keep that story close to your heart. Because you won't learn if you try to fix it yourself. When God takes us off of the ground and brings us back up, he is giving us strength as he does so to carry on. And it's strength beyond ourselves. So if you want to lead a miserable life, go ahead and do these five things we talked about. But if you want to go into the promised land and get enriched there with Joshua and Caleb, keep the grace of God before you always. Jump on that trampoline always and feel his strength rising from the inside out always. Let's pray.